Lord Jesus, glory to your name. Glory to your name in the highest, Lord. We love you. We exalt you. We praise you. Father, I pray for every heart within the sound of my voice that's in this building, for every believer here, Lord, that will leave here changed and transformed. We'll be renewed in our hearts. We'll be renewed in our minds because that's what your word does to us when we study it. So, Lord, thank you for this time of fellowship. Thank you for this time of worship. We give you thanks in all things. So, church, just give him thanks for everything he's doing in your life. Thank you, Father. Lord, we love you, praise you, and um, ask you to continue to guide us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You may have a seat. Okay, um, children are dismissed to Children's Church with Miss Barbara back there. And if you don't have a Bible, raise your hand and Rick will bring you a Bible. Rick don't have a Bible? What? No, I'm just kidding. Just kidding. Just kidding. Uh, awesome. Praise the Lord. Turning your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 8. 1 Corinthians chapter 8. One of the key dynamics in a church body, if not one of the most important dynamics in a church body, is one is our faith in God, our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, our personal relationship with him, our living relationship with him. But number two, the number two dynamic is our relationship with each other. Our relationship with each other. I want to read to you um, John chapter 13, verse 34 through 35. should be up on the screen, the icebreaker to get into this message this morning. This is what Jesus said. Jesus said in John chapter 13, verse 34 through 35, A new commandment I give you, that you love one another. Even as I have loved you, loved you, you also love one another. For by this all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. That's what the scripture says the relationship should be between us and the body. We're to love one another. We're to care for one another. We're to be there for one another. But that's not always easy. Can, we sit, can I get an amen, a couple? Amen. Sometimes it's difficult. Sometimes it's difficult. Sometimes it's difficult because uh, different personalities. Different personalities. Sometimes it's difficult because of um, different beliefs or practices on secondary issues. We call those, uh, from Romans chapter 14, if you were with us about six months ago when we were there, they're called matters of conscience. I want to introduce to you two men. Joseph Parker on the left. Everybody knows Charles Spurgeon on the right. Two of the greatest preachers in London, England back in the 1800s. They were very popular. They were very dynamic they were very enthusiastic. They were very powerful in their preaching. And they both preached in the same city. And they both had a passion uh, for God, a passion to reach people with the gospel, and a passion to preach. They were so well known that the local paper in London, the news agencies would go to their churches on Sundays, record their sermons on, uh, on paper, and then put them in the Monday morning paper. But then... After many years of having fellowship, uh, Charles Spurgeon found out that Joseph Parker would go to the theater. And Charles Spurgeon said, that is wrong. You are compromising. I don't know the details of the theater. I tried to research it. I do know that he accused him of compromise by going to the theater. What type of theater he was going to, I'm not sure. But Charles Spurgeon really, 
hammered Joseph hard because he was going to the theater. And in Charles Spurgeon's mind, that was compromise. And then it turns around that Joseph Parker found out that uh, Charles Spurgeon smoked cigars <laughs> on a regular basis. So Joseph Parker accused Charles Spurgeon of compromise. So it was well reported because they were so well covered in London, the dispute was well documented in the papers of them going back and forth over cigar smoking and, and, um, and going to the theater. My question for you this morning, what would you say to them? What would you say to them? How do you, how do you what would your advice be to them? How do you deal with disagreements on secondary issues. We call them matters of conscience. We call them gray areas. We're not talking about doctrine and theology, okay? Doctrine and theology does divide. We have to be united in our beliefs in who Jesus is, his death on the cross, his resurrection, his virgin birth, his, his uh, sinless, perfect life, the authority and the inspiration of Scripture. It's all inspired by God, 2 Timothy 3.16. It's all his word, uh, in the inerrancy of Scripture. Those are fundamental doctrines that we have to agree on to have unity. But what do you do with the gray areas? How do you feel about dancing? How do you feel about alcohol? How do you feel about music? How do you feel about tattoos? I bet if I polled you guys, we'd get some varying different answers. And some people have very strong opinions. This, these types of subjects have produced some of the greatest sword fights within the church. People dueling back and forth, trying to make their case for their position on these issues. How about this one? What do you do with Halloween? What do you do with Halloween? The Ford home, we don't practice Halloween. I know some of you do. You don't judge us. We won't judge you. But in the Ford home, our kids didn't practice Halloween. We saw it as a pagan holiday. We didn't like it. We didn't like anything it stood for. And we just could not participate in it. But I know some godly, Jesus-loving families that do participate in it. They're, they're matters of conscience. They're matters of disagreement. What do you do with uh, Christmas? Some people struggle with Christmas. You know, Santa Claus celebrating Santa and celebrating what the real meaning, which is Jesus' birth. What do you do with those? Easter, the Easter bunny. The resurrection of Jesus. How glorious, how awesome is that? But people disagree on these issues. They're, 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 people have gray areas, and these are called matters of conscience. How do you deal with other people, especially when they are gray areas? You know, most cases, I think for the most part, we can all agree on most of this, but we all have different shades of um, levels of where we take that in our faith. Again, not Bible doctrine, not theology, not scripture, but on secondary issues, things that the scripture doesn't specifically address. Uh, I love 1 Corinthians chapter 8. It's an amazingly inspired by the Holy Spirit book. It's laid out perfect. Verses 1 through 3, he's gonna, uh, the Holy Spirit through the Paul is going to give us the principles He's going to give us the principles of how to deal with matters of conscience. And then verses 4 through 12, he's going to give us application and show how it has played out. Now, Calvin, I got a message for you this morning. You ready for it? You and many of us, how many of you struggle with meat sacrificed to idols? 
Anybody show of hands? Anybody, anybody struggling in that area of their life? What to do with meat sacrificed to idols? Okay, that was a joke. None of us struggle with that. But in the first century context, that is something that these New Testament Christians were struggling with. But we can relate that to our day. We can bridge that gap to our day when it talks about these gray areas. Especially when it comes to the area of new believers. Of, of, of new believers and, and breaking away from the world and not being tempted by the things of the past. And how mature believers treat new believers. How we set the example. How we lead the way. And we don't let these issues divide us. So verses 1 through 3 are the principles. Verses 4 through 13 is the application and how to... And, and, and teaching them, responding to their question. So let's pray, and we'll get into it. Father God in heaven, thank you for your word. Thank you for these verses. As we look at it verse by verse, um, teach us, Lord, and, 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 and help us to grow in this area. Help us to grow in the area of knowledge of your word, and help us to grow in the area of love that edifies one another. In Jesus' name I pray, Lord God. Amen. Amen. All right, 1 Corinthians chapter 8, let's look at verse 1. Now concerning things sacrificed to idols, we know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge makes arrogant, but love edifies. If anyone supposes that he knows anything, he has not yet known as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by him. In this passage, I see two and possibly three principles on how to deal with matters of conscience. The first one, in verse 1, what does he say there? He says, we all have knowledge. What's he talking about? He's talking about our knowledge of the Word of God. The Christian, mature Christians there knew what the Word of God says. Everything that we know about God comes from where? The Bible and nowhere else. The Bible is the exclusive revelation of God to man. The Bible teaches us right. It teaches us what is wrong. It's, it's, we call it sola scriptura. In scriptura alone, God's word has been spoken and has been given to the church, been given to believers. True knowledge, divine knowledge, is God and God's alone. True knowledge, the word of God, it belongs to him. And wow, he has chosen to share it with us. He has chosen to, to share it with us. The Bible, the Bible that you own, the Bible that you possess, is his true knowledge. It's his pure knowledge. It's like a voice from heaven coming down and saying, this is what's true. This is what's right. This is what's wrong. This is what I am like. This is who I am, the Bible and the Bible alone. And let me say this, no other writing stands with Scripture. No other writing stands with Scripture. Scripture alone. I got my, some of my favorite books by Ray Comfort. And other people that I love reading, I love reading, but they don't, they're not, I do not elevate them to the level of scripture because the ultimate knowledge is in, is in the word of God. My question for you this morning is this, 
Do you love God's word? Do you love God's word? Do you treasure it? Do you treasure it? Uh, when you open the pages of scripture and you read through the Psalms and you read through the Proverbs and you read through the Gospels, God is speaking his knowledge to you. He's speaking it directly to you. When we gather on Sunday mornings and we get into the word of God, he is speaking to us through his word. Let me ask you this. If we get rid of these brown cows, that's what we call the chairs, the brown cows. If we get rid of the chairs and we put hard chairs in here, are you going to continue to come and gather for fellowship and getting into God's word? What if the air conditioner breaks and it gets real hot in here? It was getting hot a while ago, by the way, and now it's done cooled off again. But what if the AC breaks? Are we still going to come together and gather to hear the Father's voice through his word? That's, this is where knowledge is. This is what teaches us what's right and wrong. This is what gathers, this is what brings us together, is to do what we just did, worship, and then get into the word. Why? So that we can grow in knowledge. Now notice there's a warning there. He says, uh, but knowledge makes arrogant. We gotta be careful with our knowledge that we don't become arrogant. Uh, as a growing and maturing believer, knowledge is not enough. Something has to be added to it. Look at it at the end of verse 1. Knowledge makes, uh, knowledge makes arrogant, but love edifies. we got to take our knowledge of God's word and the principles we learn in Scripture, and then we got to add God's agape love in our hearts operating in this world so that we have the word of God in our minds and our hearts and we have his love within us. We got to handle the truth in love. We don't beat people, bash people, but we, what, is it, what does the scripture say? We speak the truth in love. Love and knowledge is how you deal with these differences. 1 Corinthians 13, 4 says this, and we'll, we'll be there in a couple weeks, well, a couple months maybe, but uh, 1 Corinthians 13, 4 says, love is patient. Love is kind and is not jealous. Love does not brag and is not arrogant. In other words, we don't have a haughty spirit. When we challenge people with the word of God, which we're called to do, one another, we're called to challenge our brother. If we see our brother in sin, we're to go to them in private. We're, we're to speak the truth in love, but we don't speak down the barrel of our nose. We do it in a spirit of love. You know what I'm saying? We do it in a spirit of love when we challenge people. True and real knowledge, according to this text, is found in the love of God and the word of God dwelling inside of us. Amen? Amen. Amen. All right, let's, uh, so the two principles, I, I, two, three, have knowledge of what the word of God says concerning the subject. Have, know what the word says and then have God's love dwelling in us. And there's a caveat in there. There's a warning that says, don't be arrogant with this information. Don't be arrogant. Okay, so now at Corinth, I ask you if anybody, anybody struggles with meat sacrificed to idols. What in the world is going on with this meat sacrificed to idols? You've probably never heard of it. Back in the ancient world, the people were very religious. And they, they worshipped false gods and, and, and um, 
and pagan temples. And they would bring meat to the temple, and that animal sacrifice would be cut into three parts. One-third would be put uh, burnt on the offering, would be burnt on the altar as an incense going up to their pagan god. The third part would be consumed by the people, and the, the, other, the last third would be given to the priest. So many sacrifices would come into the temple, they'd have all this extra meat left over. And that meat would be taken into the marketplace where it would be sold. And it was common knowledge in the ancient world and throughout Corinth that all of these meat sacrifices that were sold in, in, in the markets came from temple practices, came from the, uh, the idol worship. So that's what's going on with the meat sacrifice to idols. And now you have Christians who have come out of that old life. They're, they're now, they're born again, they're saved, they're in the church of Corinth. And they're struggling with the idea of going and partaking of that meat in the market because they, in their mind, knowing that that meat is associated with temple practice. Got it? Good? Okay. Let's look at verse 4. Verse 4. Therefore, concerning... Therefore, he's responding... Remember, they, they wrote him... A, um, they sent Paul questions, and now he's answering their questions to their letter. Verse 4. Therefore, concerning the eating of things sacrificed to idols, we know that there is no such thing as an idol in the world. And that there is no God but one. Here in the rest of the text, we're going to see those principles from verses 1 and 3 in action. And the first principle he says in verse 4, he says, We know, we know, we have knowledge. We have knowledge that there are no other gods in the world. There are no other gods. There are no other deities. Now there's demonic spirits, and we'll talk about those in a minute. But there is no other God in existence than the Lord God Almighty of the Bible. Deuteronomy 6.4, probably know it by heart. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one in the Old Testament. New Testament, 1 Timothy 6.16. Love this verse. It talks about the transcendence of God. It says, 1 Timothy 6.16 who alone possesses immortality and dwells in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see, to him, to him be honor and eternal dominion forever, to the one and true living God, the creator of the universe, who sustains all things, the Lord God Almighty, who, who came into this world, the Lord Jesus Christ. There's one God. How do we know that? How do we know that there's only one God? There's only one eternal, unchanging God. Because it is written. 2 Timothy, 2 Timothy 3.16 says all scripture is inspired by God. We know that from our knowledge of the word of God. God's word tells us that. Because it's his, his message to us. So the first thing is, according to verse 4, they have knowledge. We know. We know that there's no other deity. Verse 5, for even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords. The, the world at Corinth, it was a very religious world. They were very pantheistic, pantheistic, and they were very polytheistic. Polytheistic means they believed in many gods. There was the god of the, uh, the water. There was the god of the sky. There was the god of love. There was the god of, of, of travel. They were pantheists also. 
was a very common religion. And that's the, that's the religion that the universe is God. And we worship creation. And we worship self. That is the kind of world that they were in. And these were false religions. Now, there is no other deity in the world. There is no other God than the Lord God Almighty. But what we do see in false religions, and when we see people try to mix Christianity with other religions, we see demonic activity. We see demonic, that's a sign of demonic activity. False religions. Anything outside of Christianity. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 20 says this. No, but I say the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, <clears throat> they sacrifice to demons and not to God. And I do not want you to become sharers in demons. There are demonic forces behind false religion. And then when people try to gel everything together and be pantheistic or polytheistic, it can't, there, there are demonic activities. The one true faith is so simple that our kids can understand it. John 14, 6. Y'all know this verse. What does he say? Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. It's, tr it's, it's in Christ alone. It's in the scripture alone. Now look at verse 6. Um, so there aren't many gods, but there are demonic activities. But Paul's going to correct their thinking in verse 6. He, he inserts verse 6 in this passage, and it's a beautiful passage. If you need a passage of Scripture to put on your mantelpiece or to put in your hallway, this is a beautiful Bible verse that, that hymns have come out of. Look at verse 6. Yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom are all things, and we exist for him. And the one Lord, Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, we exist through him. So much is said in this verse. The first one, let's talk about the deity of Jesus, being co-equal with the Father, the, the Trinity, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. Look at verse 6. Talking about the, it says, one God, the Father, from whom are all things. Then skip down five or six words, and he attributes to Jesus. He says, one Lord, Jesus Christ, by whom are all things. We see the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ with the deity of the Father. And notice, it's two phrases that are paralleled, but they have the same structure. The first one says, one God, the Father, of whom are all things. And it says, what does it say? We exist for him. Then it talks about Jesus, one Lord Jesus Christ, by whom are all things. And what does it say? We exist for him. Do you know, do you understand, and I've talked about this before, your ultimate purpose on earth is to know God. To know God, to enjoy the Lord, to have a relationship with him, to live for him. Many of us have served in the military. We're going off to college and we got all these careers going on and careers are important and jobs are important and doing things in this world are important. But the ultimate purpose, your breathing air, is to have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Don't ever forget that. 
That's the number one reason you are on this earth is for him, is to have a personal relationship with him. That's why when we see these people live lives separate from Christ, you're not doing what you were intended to do on this earth. You are made for him. You are made for his glory. You are made to have a relationship with him. And when they live this life, when a person, a human being, lives this life separated from God, they're not living for what they were intended to be on earth for. They weren't. This verse, it says, uh, it says we exist for him. We exist through him. It says, one God, the Father, whom are all things. He upholds the universe. What keeps all the planets from colliding and the universe from going into pieces? The Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit upholding the whole entire universe. We got that thing coming up on August 21st, the eclipse. Give thanks to the Lord, because guess what? He's in control of that, because he's sovereign over the whole universe. He created it all. The Lord Jesus Christ, Colossians 1.16 says, For by him all things were created, talking about Jesus. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. It's all for Jesus' glory. Amen? Man, we get a hold of that, it's, it'll transform society. If Calvary Chapel, Irmo, East Lake, Gateway, all the believers in the community everywhere, we get a hold of that concept that we're here for him, it will propel us to serve him more. And that's where we want to be. We want to be in a place where we understand that truth and we live that truth out in our life. Amen? There's no greater truth than this. You were created to glorify him. Young people, what, what on earth am I here for? That's what you're here for, is to have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ and then let him lead you and guide you through college, through the military, through career, through whatever job profession he calls you. Take Jesus to the world and glorify him. Amen? Let's look at verse 7. Verse 7 says, However, not all men have this knowledge, but some, being accustomed to the idol until now, eat food as if it were sacrificed to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Two categories of believers. There's mature believers, and there's immature believers. There's believers who have grown in their faith, they've grown in the word, and they have knowledge. They know what the scripture says. They know that Jesus said in Mark chapter 7 that food in and of itself does not defile the body. Psalms chapter 24 verse 1 says, The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. They understand that truth. They understand that, that food doesn't defile you. They, they, understand, they understand what it takes to be in a right relationship with God. And that's through their knowledge of the word and being in the word. But then... There's, there's immature believers. Look halfway through verse 7, right there where it says, uh, but some, however, not all men have this knowledge, but here it is, the immature, but some, 
being accustomed to the idol until now. When he says accustomed to the idol, that means that before they came to Christ, that this idol worship, these meat sacrificed to idols in these temples, it was a part of their life. It was the way they lived when they were in the world. Until now, accustomed to idols until now, eat food as if it were sacrificed to an idol, and their conscience being weak is defiled. They could not handle being a born-again believer and having that steak there at the Church of Corinth at the family dinner hour, knowing that this steak had been come out of an animal that had been sacrificed in the temple. That thought messed with their conscience. It was a sin for them to partake because they hadn't grown. They still weren't mature in knowing what the Word of God says. That's why it's important that we grow in our knowledge and we grow in the Word of God. That's why we, we, we make much in Calvary chapels about Bible study and getting in the Word and teaching the Word so that we can grow in maturity, so that we can grow and be solid believers and not be tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine of every man, but know what the Word of God says. Amen? Amen. Amen. Verse 8. But food, there, here it is, he, just, he says it, um, basically reiterating what Jesus said in Mark chapter 7. But food will not commend us to God. We are neither the worse if we do not eat, nor the better if we do eat. Um, what commends a person to God? What commends a person to God? Is our personal relationship with Christ Jesus. Is our, our, is, is our repentance, turning away from the old life of sin, and putting our trust in Calvary, and putting our trust in the Savior who lives forever at the right hand of the Father. That's what commends us to God. And getting that relationship, deep, fervent relationship built on Him, and loving Him and trusting Him, and then out of that relationship, our love amongst other believers. That is what commends a person in their walk with Christ is, is the greatest commandment, loving God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and then what? Loving who? Loving your neighbor. Loving your neighbor, loving your friends, developing friendships, and building relationships with um, one another. So that there is the answer of part one to the matters of conscience. You gotta have knowledge. You gotta know what the word of God says. You gotta know what the word says. Now, we're gonna move into the love part. Where it's, remember we talked about in verses one through three, it says love edifies. Now we're gonna talk about the love and humility that we express towards one another when we have, when we have differences on matters of conscience. Here it is, verse nine. Talking about the relationship aspect. But take care that this liberty of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. That liberty is they, they've grown in the word, they understand what the word of God says, and it's not an issue for them. It's not an issue. Don't let that knowledge that mature believers have, don't let it become a stumbling block for an immature believer. Don't be testing the boundaries. Don't be starting off the get-go and, and, and explaining uh, liberties that there are no liberties for in Scripture. You know, one thing we, one thing we got to do is, if this is, you, get, you, you cross the line of salvation, 
You step over into faith in Christ, and now you're a born-again believer. And let's just say, for example, this is the line of compromise and disobedience. This is the life of obedience and moving forward with God. What we got to do as mature believers, we, gotta be, we can't be teaching believers, well, how close can I get to the line without sinning? How close can I live on the edge? No. we got to be teaching believers how far away you can get away from the line and grow in your relationship with God. It's not a matter, well, is it, is it a sin if I do it this much? Is it a sin if I do this or a sin if I do that? No. we got to be teaching people to move away from that line of, 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 of that and moving towards God and growing deeper in our faith and moving away from the line of compromise. Amen? Amen. Um, verse 10. For if someone sees you, sees you who have knowledge, talking about a mature believer, dining in an idol's temple back in the first century, will not his conscience, if he is weak, be strengthened to eat things sacrificed to idols? So there were mature believers at Corinth. They were going and they were partaking of the meat sacrificed to idols. It wasn't a problem. But then the young, immature believers would see them and that would defile their conscience. And they couldn't handle that because they were immature believers. This is a word here for leaders. This is a word for leaders and mature believers. What are we called to do? We are called to set the example. We are called to set the example for, for our young believers. We're called to live out what we believe and be an example. It's not about how close you can get to the line. It's about how far away you can get from the line in growing in your relationship with God. True love True love, genuine Christian um, love towards brothers and sisters in Christ teaches us this, to run from sin and to pursue holiness and dedication and commitment to him. Verse 11, for, though, for through your knowledge, he who is weak is ruined, the brother for whose sake Christ died. Guys, we gotta be careful. We gotta be careful our decisions impact other people. Our decisions impact other people. Me and Daniel were going down the road the other day. He just got his beginner's permit, right? And he's, he we're teaching him how to drive. And he said, uh, he said, Dad, I can do this. And he put his knee up against the steering wheel to hold the steering wheel. And I said, no, you can't. He said, you did. <laughs> we got to be an example. We got to lead by example. We got to teach people you know, um, we got to be careful. Our decisions and the, the way we live it impacts other people. And, and, we, and we need to be an example. Not like that. <laughs> Son, don't you ever do that. Well, you, you, I saw you do it, Dad. So, but, you know, people are going to follow us. Mom and dads, uh, your kids are going to follow you. They're going to follow you. They, that's, just, that's just the way, that's the, way the world turns. Is uh, little Johnny and little Sarah look to mom and dad, and they follow in the footsteps of mom and dad. So let's make sure that we're setting a good example and, and leading the way for them to live a wholehearted life for Christ. We live in a world, if, if parents, if, if we live a life of compromise, well, you're, most likely your children are going to live a life of compromise. You live a life of dedication and commitment, your kids are going to live a life of dedication and commitment. Amen? Amen. Amen. Hey, and it's always important, you know, as us mom, us mom and dads, don't, be afraid, don't hesitate about telling your kids, hey, I blew it. Let, let them see your confessions 
when you blow it and you make mistakes. Let, let them see that and, and let them know, hey, I blew it. I shouldn't have done it this way. You know, that temper, that anger, that frustration, whatever we've done wrong, don't be afraid to say, hey, I blew it. Let them, let them see that in us also, that we're not perfect because they're going to make mistakes too. And then we just got to love on them. Love on them and teach them the truth. Amen? Verse 12, we'll wrap this up as the worship team prepares to come back up. Verse 12. And so by sinning against the brethren and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. There again, man, we got to be careful. We don't want to cause other believers to stumble. He says we're sinning against God. We're now in the sin and, and breaking God's commandments when we lead other people astray. Got to be an example. Verse 13, Therefore, if food causes my brother to stumble, I will never eat meat again, so that I will not cause my brother to stumble. And the thing I want you to see in these last three verses of chapter 8, verses um, 11, 12, and 13, he uses the phrase brother four times. He uses the brother four times. And this is what I get from this, and it's this. Don't put yourself above the gospel. Don't put I, don't put myself above the gospel. And don't put yourself above your love for the body of Christ and for believers. Why? Why do we not put ourselves above the gospel? Why do we not um, put ourselves above others? Bring up John chapter 13 again. This is why. A new commandment Jesus says to you this morning. He says, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another even as I have loved you so that you also will love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples, that you have love for one another because we love one another and we know what the word of God says. I want to close this morning. Uh, Warren, I don't know if you were with us in Williston back several years ago, but we, uh, I, we stretched Calvary Chapel, Williston. I was meeting with a Mennonite preacher down in the Barnwell area, and uh, he's uh, uh, Pat Quill. Pat Quill is his name. And me and Pat, I invited Pat Quill, a Mennonite preacher, to come to Calvary Chapel and to preach a Sunday morning service. I wait till I got to John chapter 3, and I gave him a beautiful passage of scripture. I said, Pat, will you come teach this? And I don't know if you know anything about Mennonites. They're rock solid theologically, very good. Mennonites are, um, they're, they're pacifists. You know, they're anti-violence, and they're very anti-political, which I think we could use some of that in our day and age. But uh, anyway, I invited Pat Quill to come and preach on a Sunday morning at Calvary Chapel, Williston. He's a very um, well-known, solid Mennonite preacher known throughout the low country. And Pat Quill came to Calvary Chapel, Williston, and all the Mennonites came into Calvary Chapel, Williston. The ladies with the nice little hair buns and the flowing dresses all the way down to their ankles. And everybody at Calvary Chapel, Williston was kind of dressed like we are right now, just kind of casual and relaxed. Let me tell you something. It was a beautiful service. It was a beautiful service. And I believe we grew so much that Sunday from inviting this Mennonite minister to come and teach um, it was very challenging in the beginning, you know, because they are very, um, they're, they're a lot like um, 
the, uh, the Amish. They have a lot of similar characteristics of the Amish people up in the Pennsylvania region. And, but it was a beautiful service. And we worshiped hand in hand with them with the Calvary Chapel songs. I think we threw a couple of hymnals in there. And uh, it was just a beautiful service. But we were able that morning uh, to look past our differences on secondary issues and to worship together. And there were people, there were people on the Calvary Chapel side of the church, they were squirming. There were people on the Mennonite side, they were squirming, you know, seeing these women with makeup and, and seeing women with makeup, women not with makeup, seeing the flowing dresses and seeing Calvary Chapel's casual style. But it was a wonderful service that said, hey, these are our brothers and sisters in Christ. We're going to spend eternity with them. And we had an awesome service. Were you with us, Warren? You were, okay. But all those people coming in the door, and it was really great, really, really awesome worship morning. So secondary issues, how do you deal with them? You deal with them with love and with knowledge. And what does the scripture, what does the word of God say? It says, don't be arrogant. Let's pray. Father God in heaven, thank you for your word. Thank you for this truth on matters of conscience and secondary issues. Help us, Lord, to exercise this. Help us to not compromise, but to stand firm on the word of God. Know what your word says, but on, on these minor areas of disagreement, help us to walk in love. Help us to understand that love edifies, love builds up, Lord God, and with a careful search of your word and a and knowledge of what your word says. Lord, we love you and we praise you, and we thank you for 1 Corinthians chapter 8. Thank you for what we've learned this morning, and I, play that you, I pray that you plant it deep in our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. All God's people said, amen.